Don't forget, the word behold means to, to intently grasp something with your mind. Not necessarily your eyes, but with your mind. I believe that there are many blind people who can behold things better than many of us seeing people. Well, is your Bible open at Matthew chapter 6? You're going to need it. Matthew chapter 6. The title of the message is one word. What's the word? What is it? Behold. Behold. If, uh, if you ask someone what the word behold means, chances are they would tell you uh, it means to look. And that's not too bad. It's close, but it's not close enough. The word behold means more than just look. We get the word, the English word behold, it actually comes from an old English word, behelden. The prefix be and helden. Now the prefix be means uh, intensity or thoroughness. And so there's something requires some effort there. And helden means to grasp and to keep securely like the word hold. If you're going to hold something, well, you'd want to get a good handle on it and hang on. Maybe for dear life, you hold on, right? Come to the end of your rope, you hold on. And that idea of grasp firmly, securely. So you have be helden. And the idea is with intensity to grasp. Now, the context of the word is always with our mind. And so it's to look at something, but more than look, it's to in intently grasp hold with our mind. So that's the idea. Now you might think, or someone might think the word behold applies to people who can see. Uh, however, that's not the case. The World Health Organization tells us that there are 300 million visually impaired people in the world today which means that there are 7 billion, 700 million people who can see uh, just fine. They may need glasses, but they can see just fine. You think, well, tell a blind man to behold. I mean, how can he do that? Don't forget, the word behold means to, to intently grasp something with your mind, not necessarily your eyes, but with your mind. I believe that there are many blind people who can behold things better than many of us seeing people because it's something that you do with your mind. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now, honestly, folks, it's amazing how often we see something, but we don't really see what's there. We'll look at something, but we won't take it all in. It happens to me all the time. I'll look at something and, and I'll walk away and I'll have missed maybe the most important part. Now, to illustrate this, I have a couple pictures for you. Uh, put the first picture up, would you please? All right, we've got what looks to be a duck flying around. But how many of you saw the rabbit? Put the second picture up. We tilt that duck up and all of a sudden it doesn't look like a duck. It looks like a rabbit. Well, when you behold, you're going to intently grasp something with your mind. You're going to see 
maybe what uh, others don't see. I got another example. Put that next example up, would you please? Now, what do you see there besides the brick wall? What does it look like? A little stone, yeah. But if you look carefully, it's not really a stone you're looking at. It's a cigar. You see the brown part of the cigar? How many did not see the cigar? Raise your hand. Yeah, you see, that's me too. I didn't see that. When I first saw that, I saw, now what's that little stone doing in the wall? But when you behold something, you'll see what others don't see. What's the next picture? Let's put another one up. Okay, what do you see? It looks like what? An eyeball, but it's not. It's water going down the drain. Isn't that a weird one? There's some of the bubbles. That's the kitchen sink. That's a drain. But it looks like an eyeball, doesn't it? Okay, maybe that one was too easy for you. Try this next one. Do you see a man or do you see a woman? Try squinting your eyes real tight. And it changes, doesn't it? If you look at it one way, maybe it looks like a... A man, you squint your eyes, and oh, it looks like a woman. Well, that's a creepy one, isn't it? But you see, when you behold, you're seeing what others aren't seeing. And I think we have one more, do we? Put that in. Yeah, look, look at all of those crazy circles. Can you see them? Not one of them crosses the other. They're all separate. Put up the, the other circles. Next one, next one, and the next one. You see, they're all separate. Did it look like they were intertwined at first? Kind of looked like a squirrely thing, but really, none of them touch. Okay, you can put that away. That's just a little bit of fun and games, some parlor tricks. They call them optical illusions, but it does illustrate a point. It illustrates... We don't always see what's there. Now that's true, isn't it? You look at something and you may not really understand what it is you're looking at. You know, somehow we're just not grasping the truths God has for us. God has a lot of great things for us, but we're not beholding them. We're just looking at them. We're not grasping them with our mind. And so today, we'd like to explore this idea of beholding, grasping the truths with our mind. Let's begin with prayer. Our loving Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love and patience to us. Thank you that you're a wonderful teacher. Help us to be wonderful students. Teach us today how to behold important things. Lord, increase our faith. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. All right. Your Bible is open at Matthew chapter 6, yes? Because the first point here is behold the troubles of life. Behold the troubles of life. And the truth is, we all have them. Every one of us has troubles in life. But what is it that we're not understanding? What is it? Now, if you look at verse 26, Matthew 6, 26, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. So what's Jesus saying? The word fowl in the Bible refers to an adult bird. Today, we just call them all birds. In the nest, we might call them little chicks or little birdies or something. But uh, technically, in the Bible, the word bird refers to 
a little chick birdie, and a fowl is a grown-up bird. And so Jesus says, Behold the fowls of the air. He says, For they sow not. S-O-W, not S-E-W. They don't go forth with seed and sow seed into the field, do they? No. When was the last time you ever saw that? My wife loves feeding the birds that come to our, our back deck. And she's got a new game now. She plays with the birds. The, the peanuts that are in the shell, she'll put them out. And, of course, it's the blackbirds, the crows that come, and these stellar jays. You know, a stellar jay looks like a blue jay, but it's different. The stellar jay, I think, is the national, the provincial bird of British Columbia. I think is the stellar jay. Anyhow, both her and I have watched through our window. The stellar jay will gobble the entire peanut and swallow it. And we thought, why? What's wrong with these birds? Why don't they crack open the shell and eat the peanut? They're just swallowing. We learned later that they have a a pouch that the peanut goes into. And then they'll go and bury it someplace. And now the birds are starting to dig up our back lawn. So anyhow, all this is kind of fun, but at no time do these birds ever sow seed in the ground. Never. Nor do they reap. They don't go out with a sickle, you know, and cut down the the waving golden uh, harvest of grain. They don't do any of that. And they don't gather things into barns. Except the uh, stellar jays in our backyard, they'll uh, bury a few uh, uh, peanuts in, in the backyard, dig holes on us and bury them. But other than that, they, they don't gather into barns at all. Jesus said in verse 26, Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Now that's important. Here's the point. People all the time see the birds. I, I call them birds, all right? I'll just call them the vernacular, the birds. We see them all the time. Every day we see them. We have them come outside the church. I take some of these, uh, uh, these cookies, these round wafer cookies, and I throw them out the front door. And I love to feed the birds. And the crows, they can grab one, walk up to another one, put it down, and pick them both up in their beak. And I've seen them do that numerous times. It's so funny. But I love to feed the birds. Truth is, the Heavenly Father is feeding the birds. Oh, I thought I was feeding the birds. Well, God was using me for a few of them anyhow. But the point is, we see the birds all the time, but what is it we're not seeing? What is it we're not beholding? What we're not seeing is that it's the invisible, loving hand of God the Father who's feeding the birds. That's what Jesus is telling us here, that God makes sure the birds get fed every day. That's the invisible truth. That's what we're not grasping. But it goes further than that. You know, how many people on earth today, they see the birds, they see the animals, they'll see the insects, but do they realize, do they understand that God Almighty is the zookeeper? God really is the zookeeper of all of the creation all over the world. It's the works of his hands. And God is not only the creator of life, but get this, God is also the sustainer of life. He not only creates, he sustains. We learn that from verse 26. The fowls of the air, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather. The heavenly Father feedeth them. God is not only the creator, he's the sustainer. Now pay very close attention. Jesus tells us, that in 
looking at this, beholding, you know, what God is doing for the birds, watch what Jesus says at the end of verse 26. Are ye not much better than they? You see what Jesus is doing here? He's opening our eyes to a truth that we haven't seen. We see the birds, but we don't see the invisible hand of the zookeeper feeding them. Wow, that's amazing. But what else we don't see is that in the eyes and mind of God, you and I are far better than the birds. And if God will do this for the birds, don't you think he's going to do this for us? Now, how, how about that? Boy, that's worth beholding. There's a truth to grasp with your mind. And every time from now on, from today forward, when you see a bird or an animal eating, you remember the heavenly father, the great God, the zookeeper of the world is feeding them. And let it remind you what Jesus says next, that you are much better than any of the birds or the animals. I'm saying to you this, never, ever, ever lose sight of how valuable you are in the eyes of God. And you know, the busier you get at work, the busier you get at home, the busier you get on the golf course or wherever, you tend to forget that there's a father up above looking down in tender love. We often lose sight of that, that we are so valuable to our heavenly father. Now, there are many reasons for suicide. There's too many reasons than what I can share with you today. But I want to give you quickly two of them. Number one, one reason why people contemplate suicide. Not everyone who contemplates suicide commits suicide. Listen, I'll bet you that almost every single one of us here today has at least at one time in our, th in our life thought, what would it be like to just finish it? To just put the gun to my head, just to turn the wheel into the oncoming dump truck, you know? We've all been tempted with that. You say, why? Because I think there's a real devil, I'll tell you, that's why. And he puts crazy thoughts in our heads sometimes. And so if you've ever had thoughts like that, I want you to know you're amongst good company. We're all like that. We all face those sort of things. You know, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And so one reason why some people contemplate suicide is because they've lost sight of how valuable they are in the eyes of their creator. That's one reason why people contemplate suicide. But listen, another reason, and it kind of goes hand in glove with, with what we're learning here, but another reason for suicide is actually found, look, take a look in verse, chapter 6 and verse 25. The Lord says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Now that, that means anxious thought what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? <clears throat> I want you to know that the cares and fears of life can overwhelm people. And it, it seems like the cares and problems and fears just gang up more than they can handle. And that'll cause them to start thinking about ending their lives. People who can only see the things of life. Now, that's all I'm talking about here. As I told you earlier, there are many reasons for suicide. But here's one of them here. People get their eyes too much on the things of life. What they'll eat, what they'll wear, where they're going to live, car they're going to drive, 
you know, their cottage, their boat, and all of the things. And I'm not saying that any of these things are evil or wrong. And if God has blessed you with them, great. But it's the man or woman or young person, all they can see in life are the things, the things. And usually money is one of those things, right? They get their eyes on the big paycheck. They get their eyes on winning the lotto. They get their eyes on the things that they think they need in life. And they get their eyes so much on these things that when these things are taken away from them, they start thinking suicide. And this is very real. The website entitled Money and Mental Health tells us that in England, over 420,000 people in debt consider taking their own lives. And the same website tells us that more than 100,000 people in debt actually attempt suicide. They actually try it. The website Medical News Today says that, according to a new study, people who have recently experienced severe financial strain may have a 20-fold higher risk. That means 20 times higher than someone else. A 20-fold higher risk of attempting suicide than those who have not encountered hardship. I looked up the Government of Canada's website and Public Health Service says that 4,000 people commit suicide every year in Canada. 4,000. And I'll bet you that it's at least 10 times that number of people who contemplate suicide. But I got thinking, of those 4,000 people who've killed themselves uh, every year, how many of those people killed themselves because of debt? Because they ran out of money? Because they lost their things? They were fired from their job. They couldn't afford to keep their house. They, could, they had to hand their car back in somehow. They had to declare bankruptcy or, or, or something that they thought was just too shameful to ever face in life. Many, many years ago, on October the 24th, 1929, October 24th, 1929, became known as Black Thursday. Now today, people think of Black Friday. Well, for the Christian, Black Friday is when Jesus died on a cross. He died on a cross on a Friday. For us, that's Black Friday. That's as black as it gets. But then, hallelujah, Sunday, he rose from the dead. He's alive today, amen. But today, Black Friday, that's the sale day. That's where you go and you, you save all kinds of money, usually spending money you don't even have. But that's another story. But October the 24th, 1929, became known as Black Thursday when the 1929 stock market crash wiped out the life savings of a vast number of people. <clears throat> From what I could read, 40 to 50 people in New York City alone committed suicide, many of them jumping out of the buildings. Uh, just a few years ago in 2008, an investment banker named Bernie Madoff was arrested for committing a $50 billion investment scheme. It was a Ponzi scheme where he takes some money and then pays that to the first investor. And then the next investor sees, oh, he's made money. And so takes some of his money, pays it to the second one. Meanwhile, Bernie Madoff is living like a billionaire 
and people don't realize that they're wiped out until finally one day his house of cards came crashing down. Countless people's life savings were wiped out. We're talking $50 billion worth of investment money that people gave willingly. They, oh, they begged Bernie Madoff to take their money and invest it. They thought he was the best of the best. And unfortunately, several people around the world connected with Bernie Madoff committed suicide. And of course, many others contemplated it. Now take a look please again at Matthew chapter 6. And I'd like you to read with me verse 28. Verse 28, read it out loud. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Out in verse 30 as well. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? What's Jesus telling us? Stop worrying about the things of life. Your heavenly Father looks at you, he looks at the birds, and he rather you. You are far more valuable to God than the birds and the animals whom God is already feeding. He makes sure that they get their breakfast or dinner or something. He will look after us. In fact, over in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus plainly told us, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Covetousness for us usually means, I want more. I have enough, but, you know, I want more. I think I deserve more. Yes, and I'm going to go in and see my boss and slam my fist on the table and demand more. And Jesus is telling us, beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. So many people that get uh, despondent and want to kill themselves because they've lost their job, they've lost their house, they've lost their car. When you lose things, well, really you've lost nothing. When you lose your health, well, you've lost something. But listen to me. If you lose your soul, then my friend, you've lost everything. Put a far bigger premium on your soul before Almighty God than upon the few little baubles and trinkets that come in in and out of our hands every day, every year. Things are, are just that. They're just things. Folks, I'm saying we all need to behold and see what it is we're not seeing. We need to realize that our loving Heavenly Father really will meet our needs if we look to Him in faith. All right, quickly moving along, that brings us to the second behold. Behold the constant need of missions. Now for this, I'd like you to turn to the right to the Gospel of John, chapter number 4. John, chapter number 4. In John chapter 4, we have the familiar story of the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman. Jesus, of course, was born into Jewish lineage. The, the 12 disciples were all Jews. They had to go through Samaria. And there was this well uh, and this Samaritan woman who was there. The disciples had gone into the city to buy some food. While they were gone, Jesus was sitting at the well. This woman came. You know the story. She had about five or six husbands, one after the other. 
so she, uh, she came and Jesus asked her for a drink of water. And she thought that was unusual. How is it that you being a Jew ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so that caught her attention. And so Jesus, you know, he opened up a spiritual conversation. The bottom line, if you're familiar with the story, is she realized finally who it was she was talking to. This wasn't just a Jewish man. This was God in the flesh. This was the Messiah. And she was so stunned by this that she left her water pot and she raced as fast as she could back into the city to tell the people she knew. And while she was gone, the disciples came and they had a couple bags of groceries with them. And they said, well, eat something. And then Jesus speaking figuratively says, well, I have food to eat that you don't know of. And the disciple says, well, has someone given him something to eat? And Jesus said, no, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. And by the way, my Christian friend, is that your food too? Do you have a hunger, thirst, a desire to do God's will? If not, why not? Jesus showed us the example. Too many of us, well, we have our little agenda, we have our plans in life, you know, we have our goals, we have uh, the earthly kind of food we want to eat, but when it comes to doing the will of God, we just take the tiniest little nibble here and the tiniest little lick over there. Folks, we should be devouring the will of God. That is so important. Tonight, Pastor Devian has got a message for us, and it has to do with the will of God. Listen, what do you think Jesus would counsel you on a Sunday night? If you were not working, you're not sick, would Jesus counsel you to come to church? Think about that. Anyhow, be here tonight. You'll really enjoy that message. It's better than watching online. Watching online is great if you can't be here in person. But I think it's like heaven. You know, it's better to be there. Wow. And so anyhow, back to the story of John chapter 4. Jesus is trying to teach the disciples something, a very important truth. <clears throat> and so in verse 35, chapter 4, verse 35, here's Jesus speaking. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. And so, in other words, at this point that Jesus was talking to the disciples, it was four months away from harvest. They hadn't even sown the seed in the field yet. Jesus is saying, well, when is harvest? Oh, Lord, that's not for four more months. We haven't even put the seed in the field. In fact, the, seed, the field still needs to be cultivated there's some weeds there and some stones shouldn't be there. We got to cultivate all that and make it ready. Then we got to get the seed in there. And then finally, it'll start growing. And then four months from now, we'll be ready to harvest. That's sort of what Jesus is saying. Say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. Then look at the next word. What is it? The word what? Say it. I can't hear you. Behold, yeah, behold. And of course, behold means more than look. It means to grasp firmly with your mind's eye. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. What is Jesus talking about? Well, many commentators, many theologians believe that at this point, the lady, the woman at the well, who ran back as fast as she could into the city, and she, she told everyone she knew, come see a man that told me all things ever I did. 
is not this the Christ? And so she sparked their curiosity enough and maybe they said, well, we'll check it out for you, lady. And so all these Samaritans start coming out of the city over the fields toward the well where Jesus and the disciples were. And the Samaritans were dressed in white robes at that time. And so you have a perfect picture. Jesus is telling the disciples, Behold, look, the fields are white already to harvest. And as they looked, they would have seen all these white-robed Samaritans coming toward them. You see what Jesus is saying? Look, look what you're not seeing. There are men and women that need salvation. That's the point here. The point is that um, there is a constant need of missions. They didn't see it at first, did they, the disciples? All they saw was the well, the bags of groceries, the Lord, the dirty fields, a bunch of people, but they didn't see that it was a harvest already. And that's so true. The disciples, they, they just saw a bare and empty field at that very moment, the white-robed Samaritans were coming out of the village toward them. It was a harvest of human souls coming over the fields, all of them needing Jesus. We have just come through our World Conference on Missions, and we've raised 90% of the money we need to continue supporting the 108 missionaries that we currently support. But there are still countless people all over the world that are looking for the Savior. They're coming to Jesus. You know, you and I, we look at the cities and we see a city here and a city there and a city there, but that's not all. That's not what Jesus sees. He sees harvest fields. He doesn't see the city of Surrey. He sees the harvest fields of Surrey. And there's a difference there. Who will be the next person to come to know Jesus as Savior? We don't know who it will be. And that's why we must never leave off soul winning. We must never leave off missions. Because it's out there. There are people today, this very moment, in their hearts saying, I wish I had the answer. I wish I could somehow know God. <clears throat> I wish I could overcome this world and the problems and my own habits and, and hang-ups and sins. I wish I could make connection with God Almighty. There are people like that. There's a harvest there. Oh, listen, if you're not yet part of Faith Promise for Missions, would you please consider doing it today? I think you know all about it. We've preached on it for a few weeks now. And Get yourself one of these cards. You may find one in the, in the pew still. Get one of these. Fill it in. Don't put your name on it. Zip off the bottom portion and hand it in with the offering. Help us to raise that last 10%. Now we have to hurry. And this brings us to number three. Behold the wonderful truths of the Bible. Already we've seen some amazing things, haven't we? That weren't there on first blush. But point number three. Why can't we understand more of the Bible? Why is it that so many times we read and we don't understand what we've just read? Well, I want to suggest to you there are two basic reasons for that. And for the first reason, I'd ask you to go to the middle of the Bible, back to the book of Psalms. Psalm 119. 
Psalm 119. And we're going to go to verse number 18. Psalm 119, verse 18. Psalm 119, verse 18. Do you have it? Would you read it out loud with me now, please? Here we go. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Say, what does that mean? It means we're not asking God. We're not going to God. We're just opening the Bible and trying to understand it on our own. We're not going to God and say, God, I need to be taught. Let me be a good student. Help me to understand what's here. This is a prayer the psalmist made. I believe it was King David who wrote Psalm 119. And that's a great prayer to pray to God. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. When you come to church, and I hope you come, when you come, we try and teach and preach the Bible. And I hope that every time you come, there's something new for you, something you can learn. Or maybe an old truth that you had forgotten and you have to relearn. And that's common as well. But this, I believe, is the first of the two reasons why we don't understand more of the Bible. is because we're not asking God to teach us. But there's a second reason, and this one is more prevalent worldwide. If you would please turn to the New Testament, to the book of Acts. Acts and chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. Boy, the book of Acts is an exciting book. It tells us what happened in the first 40 years of the church's existence. It's a great book. And in chapter 8, we've got this amazing man named Philip. And Philip was like an evangelist. And he would tell people about Jesus wherever he went. Well, the Lord sent him off into the desert to meet up with a man. And this man was from Ethiopia. And the man, he had been to Jerusalem and he was trying to find God. He was trying to be religious. He was trying to read the Bible. He was trying to know the Lord. And he was having a lot of trouble. And so the religious festivities are over in Jerusalem. He's in his chariot. He's coming back. He's going back to Ethiopia. And lo and behold, he's reading his Bible in the chariot. Now some of these chariots were kind of big. They, maybe you have in your mind's eye this tiny little space on two wheels and there's only enough room for maybe two people. Yes, there were chariots like that. But then there were other chariots that were quite a bit bigger where very wealthy people traveled in comfort and style. And that's the kind of chariot you have here. And so anyhow, this guy, he's trying to read the Bible. And now I want you to look at verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 30. So it says, Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. That's Isaiah of the Old Testament. And here's what he said. Philip asked this question. Understandest thou what thou readest? <laughs> Doesn't that sound familiar? Do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31. And he, that's the Ethiopian, said, How can I except some man should guide me. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Verse 32, the place of scripture which he read was this. This was the passage out of Isaiah. 
He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so now, verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? And so here's the Ethiopian. And you just got to love this man because he's so honest. And he's trying to find the Lord. And he's reading out of Isaiah chapter 53. It's all about the Savior Jesus. It's prophetic about Jesus. And so in verse um, 32, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. That's what happened to Jesus. They led him as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before his shearer. And when the, the lamb is, is sheared, it's quiet. So opened he not his mouth. The Lord didn't open his mouth and, and say, ah, this rotten, miserable government, they're persecuting me without a cause. They're taking me down. Oh, listen, he wasn't like that at all. And he didn't lambaste them and he didn't call them names. He didn't call them a bunch of Nazis and, and horrible war criminals. He didn't do any of that. that it, he opened not his mouth. Verse 33, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. True, honest judgment was taken away. He was put through a kangaroo court. They had trumped up charges against Jesus because they just wanted to kill him. His judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? Well, they can't because he died. He was cut off from life at 33 years of age. For his life is taken from the earth. And Philip had the joy of explaining this to the Ethiopian. Here's the number, one, the number two reason, and probably maybe it should be the number one reason why most people can't understand the Bible is because they don't yet know the author of the Bible. They don't yet know the author of the Bible. Maybe someone here has written a book. If you've ever written a book, maybe it's your own autobiography, maybe it's a book on insects, maybe it's a book on the kind of work you do, Maybe it's a book about your childhood experiences. But if you've written a book, then you are the number one person who can interpret that book. Someone reads the book and they have a question, they can come to you. You are the author. You are the one who wrote chapter one, chapter two. You're the one who put in that illustration in chapter three. And they sit down with you and say, can you tell me what this means? Well, you're the author. You can easily explain what it means. And here is what I think is the reason why most people in the world can't understand the Bible is because they don't know the author yet. Once you know the author, all of a sudden now, you can start to understand the Bible. You know, in my own life back in 1974, I started reading the Bible because I was up to my eyeballs and problems and I was trying to find God. And I was reading the Bible and understanding nothing. I couldn't understand anything it said. It was English, but I still couldn't understand it. <laughs> but it felt good in my heart. Every time I read it, something just felt warm and good. And so I thought, I like that. That's good. I kept reading and finally, my Bible reading got me into a little church where I started hearing the Bible preached and taught. And after a few months, 
on April the 6th, 1975. It was a Sunday. I finally understood what I need to do, what I need to pray in order to make connection with God. Now, when that happened, the light bulb went on and boy, I could start to understand the Bible. Wow, was I ever excited. And this brings us to our last point today. Point number four. Behold your need of personal salvation. A lot of people don't think that they need to be saved, but they do. Now for this, I want to show you an amazing story, and it's in the book of Genesis. So go back to Genesis. I hope you don't need help finding the book of Genesis. Chapter 22. Do we really understand what salvation is about? In chapter 22, we have Abraham. He's an old man at this time. I don't know, maybe 116 years of age. People tended to live longer back in Abraham's day. Today, you know, we bite the dust pretty early. But back then, you know, we're talking 3,000 years ago, give or take, people lived longer. They lived longer lives. Abraham was 116. His son Isaac may have been 16 years of age at the time. Maybe he was a little less. I don't think he was much more. He's called a lad, L-A-D, in verse 5. A lad, L-A-D. He's not a man. So he's a young guy. Anyhow, whatever, however old he is. Now, God said to Abraham, take your son, Isaac, your only son, and take him to a place I will show you and offer him up for a burnt sacrifice. No man had ever been asked of God to do that ever before or ever since. So this was absolutely new for Abraham. But in obedience to God, he got ready early the next morning, took a few servants, they saddled up the donkey, they got the stuff they needed and off they went on a three-day journey to this place where they were to do this sacrifice. <clears throat> and so they finally get there. Abraham says to the servants, you fellows wait here. Isaac and I will go and worship and we will come again to you. That's the faith that Abraham had. And so I want you to look please at verse 7. Chapter 22, verse 7. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Here's Isaac. He doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know that he is supposed to be the sacrifice, sacrificial offering. He doesn't know that. And so he's walking along with his dad. Maybe he had to look up a bit and said, Dad... Yes, son. Well, here's the fire and here's the wood. But where's the lamb? What a heart-rendering question for this boy to ask his father. His father full well knowing what he's got to do. How would the father answer the son? And so we have verse 8. Abraham answered, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And that seemed to satisfy Isaac. So they went, both of them together. 
This is an amazing story. As you know, when the time came and Abraham lifted up his hand with the knife, that's when God stopped him. That, by the way, in case you don't know this, that is the sign language for Abraham. You know, in American Sign Language, they speak with symbols in their hands, right? That is the symbol. That represents the name of Abraham. With the imaginary knife, that's Abraham. That's the sign language for Abraham. So, now you've learned something. Aren't you glad you came to church? And so anyhow, Isaac, all that Isaac could see was the fire and the wood. Does that make sense? Yes? That's all the boy could see. He couldn't see anything more. He could not see what his father could see. His father could see something. His father could behold something that his son could not behold. Abraham had been around a little while longer than, than Isaac, which is, by the way, a good thing for teenagers that they should sort of give the benefit of the doubt to their parents because their parents have been around longer than the teenagers have. Just a little word of encouragement there. So anyhow, we find Isaac looking. All he can see is the fire and the wood. But he could not see what his father could see by faith, that God would provide the lamb. Now, if you look, please, here's what happened in verse number 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram, R-A-M. A ram is a male sheep, a male sheep. Now, for those of you who wish you were shepherds, male sheep grow horns, sometimes curly horns, sometimes big horns. You know, when they blow the shofar, you see the, uh, the Jews, they're dressed and they blow the shofar, you know, for a, a Sabbath service. That's a, a sheep horn they're blowing. And so here's a ram. And it says here, uh, caught in a thicket by his horns. Somehow this, this male sheep got in there and got all tangled up with his horns. And he couldn't move. Abraham had just been stopped from sacrificing his son. He hears a noise. He turns. Hey, God will provide himself a lamb. Isn't that what Abraham told Isaac? And look what's right, and right there for him. There it is right there. And so it says here, Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And verse number 14, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. Say that with me. Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Jehovah Jireh has that idea of the Lord will provide. Just like what Abraham told his son, God will provide himself a lamb. Jehovah Jireh. There's a little song that people sing. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. His grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. The male sheep. Abraham beheld the ram and he saw more than just the ram. Now this is what I want to show you today. You might not see this. But when, when I tell you a verse in John chapter 8, then you'll see it. But here at this very moment, when Abraham was stopped from offering Isaac and he saw the ram and he offered the ram, Abraham saw something 
that no one else saw, not even Isaac saw. And you probably don't see it either. But in John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus is talking about this exact event in Genesis 22. I'll read it for you. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus referred to this event. He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Here's Jesus, 2,000 years after Abraham. Jesus is talking to some of the religious intelligentsia. And he's telling them, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Well, how could Abraham see when Jesus was on earth? Right there. By faith. God pulled the curtain of time back. Abraham beheld something that no one else saw. Abraham saw the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins. Now, this is very important truth. Folks, you and I, we have beheld something amazing here in Genesis 22. Now, look at verse 15. Uh, and the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven and the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. Now just jump down a verse to verse 18. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. God told Abraham, in you, Abraham, all of the world's nations will be blessed. Now what does that mean? Well, that means Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. It says the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. That's in the New Testament. That's the New Testament commentary on this verse here in Genesis 22. Bottom line, it applies to us today. It means that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ. Abraham saw it 4,000 years ago. Abraham was blessed. He saw something that no one else saw. Folks, listen to me. Every man, woman, and young person alive today needs the Lord Jesus Christ as his or her personal Savior from sin. God provided a lamb to save Isaac, and God provided his only begotten Son to save us. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Did you know something? That Jesus knocks on doors. Did you know that? The door spoken of is the door of your heart. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Folks, that's the door of your heart. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. That's what happened to me on April the 6th, 1975. It's as if I could hear Jesus knocking on my heart's door. May I come into your life? May I come into your heart? May I forgive you your sins? May I be your personal Lord and Savior? And by that point, I said, Oh, please, Jesus, come on in. And I opened my heart's door. 
Did you know that when Jesus promises to come in you, he's not talking some metaphysical, some kind of symbolic thing. He's talking literally. He will literally come inside of you. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to have Jesus in your heart. I believe today Jesus is knocking at the doors of people's hearts, asking permission to enter in, to forgive their sins, and to be Lord and Savior. Today, I ask you, can you behold the truth? Can you grasp it with your mind's eye? That everyone, everywhere, is in need of salvation. Can you grasp that truth? If you have ears to hear, can you hear the still small voice of Jesus asking to come in your heart? The question is, will you open your heart today to Jesus and receive him as your Lord and Savior? All right, we have to close things up. I challenge you to behold and grasp the truth with your mind. The name of the sermon today is Behold. To grasp firmly with your mind's eye. I encourage you today to deepen your commitment to God. Now maybe for someone here today, the deepening of commitment will mean just that, opening their heart and asking Jesus to come in. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And we're going to pray. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.